Assalamu alaikum and welcome to another episode of the Dr. Will Show, where I interview educators and entrepreneurs on leveling up. Each episode, I zoom in someone who's dope, and we just sit back and have a conversation on what it means to live your best life. Now, if this is your first time checking out the podcast, this is the Mobile University for Entrepreneurs, and I'm your host, Dr. Will. Now, today's guest is Dr. Kristen Slack. I was just thinking about her name earlier, uh, and I was like, Dr. Slack. Like, that's just cool. Uh, and I was like, wow, okay. Like, you know, every now and then you run across the, that name, and you go, oh, that's different. I like that. That's real cool. Dr. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> yeah, my, my, my maiden name was Shook, so I didn't move very far. <laughs> awesome, awesome. So she's a social work social worker, uh, professor, and I wanted to have her on to share her gem. She has created this platform, membership platform, which I think is genius. And I wanted to have her on to share her gems, talk about her journey into entrepreneurship, and hopefully give you some better ideas on how you may yourself start your own uh, membership site. So for those who will be listening on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Simplecast, Stitcher, and Spotify. Will you please introduce yourself, Dr. Slack? Sure. Well, thank you very much for having me, Dr. Well. It's an honor to be here. Um, I'm just so excited to have discovered you because in discovering you, I discovered all these other people that are doing amazing things um, because of their insights around um, education and how to improve it. So that's, that's pretty cool. Um, so I'm a professor of social work at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This is, I've been there about 20 years. Um, and mostly I do research actually in the area of child maltreatment prevention. So what we're here to talk about today, the business I started is something completely different, but it um, grew out of my sort of just observations over the last couple decades of, you know, what was missing, what tools did I need to make my job more effective, um, more efficient. Um, and I live here in Madison, Wisconsin, and I've got uh, four kids, two of my own and two stepkids and wonderful husband and a dog. All right. All right. So what's the, what's the diversity like in Wisconsin? It depends on where you are. I mean, Wisconsin as a state, um, if you're talking about sort of demographics, um, it, it's predominantly um, white. Um, in Madison, Wisconsin, especially being a university town, we have higher rates of representation of people of color um, that you don't see in other parts of the state. And, and then we have Milwaukee, a large urban area, um, which is much more racially diverse. Um, and then we have quite a few rural areas of the state. So, um, you know, a lot of farmland, a lot of small counties, um, you know, um, cold weather. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's, it's a mix. Um, a lot of people here, I, I'm not from here originally, I'm from Michigan, but um, a lot of people here have Norwegian heritage. I guess that's a big um, um, uh, heritage group. Um, and then we have a, a fairly large Hmong population as well. Wow. Mm -hmm. Didn't see that coming. Mm -hmm. uh, wow. Cold. Yeah, I lived in Boston for three years. Oh, you know cold then. And I was like, wow. I had never known cold like that ever. And uh, I was like, mm. I would move back though. I, I enjoy Boston 
And I think moving to a cold area would depend on my check. Sure. Uh, because. <laughs> <laughs> because you still got to afford to go vacation somewhere warm. So. <laughs> yeah. 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 I'm, you know, my, my wife is from Chicago and there'll be times where it's like cold here. So it'd be 50 degrees, 40 degrees, which to some people is kind of warm. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I tell the wife, look, we need to cut that heat on. Stop playing with me now. <laughs> but sometimes I cut the heat on. She'll come behind me and cut it off. And I said, look, better cut the heat on. Don't be playing around me like this. Okay? <laughs> I got to stay warm and toasted. She's like, but you can't put it on 80 degrees. I said, well, put it on 75. With, I'm with her. 60, 65. I'm happy. I'll be sizzling. Well, like, I need some cocoa. <laughs> call for me. Um, so I'm always curious about this. Uh, you know, as children, people normally, you know, when you're younger, you have all sorts of ideas about what you want to do or be when you grow up. What did you think you would be doing when you were growing up? And what drew you first to social work and Mm -hmm. then to education? Mm -hmm. Um, Well, my mother um, was a third, fourth grade teacher. So I grew up with someone in the K through 12 arena. And I would observe her at night, you know, creating things for the classroom, you know, the next day, little games that she'd make up herself and put together, um, you know, you know, fun assignments she'd create. She was always working on these kinds of things. And I don't think at the time I really thought I'd be a teacher. Um, But I do think doing what I'm doing now, um, which I'll get to, I think, um, kind of harkens back to that. Like, I do think it affected me. Um, because I saw her intellect and her, you know, in my opinion, brilliance coming from these intellectual little artifacts that she created, you know, that required her knowledge and expertise of her field. And, um, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't the research papers she she published or the presentations she gave. It was, it was all these things that, that were about helping kids learn. And she had insight in how to do that. Um, and, and, and I don't think she ever really got recognized for that kind of contribution. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll get back to that. And in, in terms of what I thought I'd be doing, to the extent I even started thinking about that, um, you know, maybe middle school, high school, um, I, I think I, w- I think I thought I wanted to be a psychologist. Mm. Um, I knew I wanted to do something in this kind of mental health, behavioral health area. Um, I um, went to college and that's what my major was, was psychology. I played around with, um, I wanted, thought I wanted to be an architect for about a day. Didn't do so well in the physics 101. So that dream was dashed. Um, and so back to psychology. Um, and, and so when I graduated from undergrad, I, I, um, I actually didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I loved being in school. So I thought I would get another degree. And I thought if I'm going to be a psychologist, I need to go on and get a master's or a PhD. So I applied um, to clinical psych programs and somebody just happened to mention social work. I'd never considered it, thought about it. Um, But I knew that you could be a therapist if you were a social worker. Um, So I threw my hat in the ring with a few schools of social work. And once I started learning more about social work, I was hooked because it's really more about 
the person in their environment. Mm -hmm. And it's about thinking about all different levels of environments that, that people are affected by. And it's, it's about taking the onus off that person to change. It's about trying to change systems and structures and, um, and that part really excited me. And so I ended up more on the kind of policy side of social work than the clinical. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's what I pursued and went on and got my PhD in uh, social welfare policy and ended up uh, as a faculty member in a social work school. Wow. Well, I thought about becoming a therapist at once. I thought about doing a lot of stuff. But when I found out that therapy was a process, mm -hmm. then I knew I couldn't do it because I could just see myself sitting there going, just stop it. Yes. Right. Like stop doing what you're doing. This is insane. And I know that's not what therapy is. So I was like, okay, I, I'm not going to make a good therapist. So uh, we're a lot alike. Cause I realized I was much too bossy to go yeah. in the clinical direction. Um, yeah. And you're supposed to start where the person is and you, and you're supposed to, um, you know, be patient with that process. And I had a hard time with that too. Um, and, and I also had a little bit of like, what do I know? I'm not in their shoes and, you know, what do I know? <laughs> and mm. so I, I found it easier to study bigger, um, larger structures and systems that were affecting them. Mm. Um, you know, just, just because I found that was another, another avenue, another way of trying to help. Mm. So you are the founder of Prof2Prof. Prof. I went to the website, checked it out, got the no-go going on. Okay. I was like, oh. Look at Dr. Slack here. Uh, what is it and what was the pain point behind you creating the company? Well, you'll, you, you'll appreciate the story um, being in the, you know, from the K through 12 space. Um, I, so I've always known either, um, not maybe, I wasn't maybe aware of this, but I always, th I think I've always had kind of entrepreneurial tendencies, you know, and it can be something small like, you know, refurbishing furniture I find on the side of the road and figuring out how to make money doing that. You know, I, it's just always something I'm thinking, what is, what is the thing that's going to excite me and make me um, feel like I'm creating something? Um, and I had um, this moment back in 2015, it was in July 2015, it was like two in the morning and I was looking at my phone because I couldn't sleep. <laughs> And I came across this story in the New York Times about a website or a platform called Teachers Pay Teachers. Are you familiar with that one? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and this gets back to my story about my mother, because I'm, re I'm looking at this, story, um, this New York Times story, and I'm, I, I go to the website, I start looking at it, and it's all these little things like my mom created. You know, it's all these great tools and games and strategies and worksheets and, you know, that were created by teachers. And I thought, wow, I thought, you know, I need, we need something like this for higher ed, you know, um, because the vast amount of things we create in higher ed never get noticed besides, you know, the, the 20 to 100 students in our class. Um, and we create some really cool stuff at, you know, uh, faculty members, instructors, researchers in higher ed. Um, and the people who kind of get the glory in higher ed are the ones that publish their research. And so there are platforms out there for sharing your research. 
only about 20% of the higher ed um, you know, faculty instructional workforce does research, but like 80% of that workforce teaches and they teach a lot, you know, they teach a lot of different classes and they have to launch, you know, 10 to 15 course sessions in a semester and they might have multiple classes and just think of the amount of material you need to create um, for, for doing something like that. And it's not, um, I didn't feel like the currency for sharing that material was necessarily to get paid for it like it is on Teachers Pay Teachers, where you might pay two or three dollars for this or that. Um, because really the currency in higher ed is just to be acknowledged for your contributions, to be cited for your work. And I felt frustrated that we didn't really have a platform where we could think about our teaching as scholarship too. Mm. And we could share all these materials we create and learn from each other, adapt those things, cite people who want to be cited, um, give people recognition for the great work they do in the classroom, um, and also for the great work they do administering programs or providing student support services. We're constantly recreating the wheel in higher ed. And instead of learning from each other, um, so I wanted to create this platform. And then um, the other thing that sort of motivate, motivated me is that we now have in this country, I think it's now like three quarters of the instructional workforce in higher ed are adjunct faculty who tend to not get paid as well, not have job security, um, or at least you know good job security. Um, and they make huge contributions to higher ed institutions and to the students they're teaching. And they don't really have a place to showcase what they're doing um, in a way that the research faculty do. Um, so I really wanted to create a space where that sort of um, acknowledges everyone's contributions and the broad range of contributions that people make. So that, that's why I created prof to prof Wow. Now, if you are an adjunct who are listening to this podcast and you're that group of adjuncts that you're teaching, you know, six classes at two, three different universities, you know, to make ends meet, I want you to stop it and go to, go to K through 12. I know it might not be on your radar, but there's all, there's a teacher shortage in K through 12 you have a doctorate in a specific social, you know, uh, specific content area. And you're not going to be rolling in the dough now. You're not going to be making it rain. But what you will get is full-time employment and benefits and not have to worry about where your next check is coming from. Uh, just want to throw that out there. Uh, because I, I see. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Because we don't really have a solution in, in higher yeah. ed. It just keeps getting... Um, and, and I, I am not, I don't say any of this because I think adjunct faculty are sort of less than some of the best teachers we have in our school of social work are people in the field, you know, who know, you know, who see clients and, and know what's going on. Mm -hmm. Um, you and I were talking about that a little bit beforehand, but just be, you know, having, having your, you know, daily sort of exposure to the real world, um, matters a lot in the classroom. Um, and I, I, I'm more concerned about the fact that, you know, we don't 
always recognize and celebrate the contributions of adjunct faculty. And I wanted to create a place where they could point people to and say, look at all this cool stuff I've done. And you should give me a full-time job, you know, with job security and full benefits. Um, but right now there isn't a way to kind of collate all that, all that work and present it in a really exciting way. Mm. So as a membership site, how do you control which resources are valid mm -hmm. and which ones aren't? What is your process for verifying and validating what gets uploaded? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a good question. I thought a lot about this in the very beginning and I quickly realized that, you know, I am really, really smart about one very specific thing <laughs> you know, that I studied for my dissertation and my in my work, um, and there's there's no way I can vet um, the full range of contributions made by people in a you know in all these different disciplines, um, but I do think there's a difference between you know say I'm teaching a course on uh, poverty in America which is a course we teach, you know, in schools of social work. Um, you might go to Google and type poverty and get literally like 40 million hits, <laughs> right? And you can refine that and find things that are a bit more specific, but you're still gonna get way too many hits to wade through and try to figure out what's what and what, what the quality is of everything. At least on a membership site where everybody on the site is, um, working inside of academia or affiliated in some way with academia, um, you hopefully have a level of expertise in your, in your field that what you're creating passes some bar of quality. Mm -hmm. But I, th I think it's still up to people on the site to vet things and to think for themselves whether the quality bar has been met. Um, and, and that will re be reflected in whether people endorse you know, a particular resource often, whether they leave feedback on it, things like that. Um, so it's, it's not a perfect system, um, but I didn't want to be in the business of kind of censoring what went on there. Um, and, and even if I were to do a Google search as a faculty member trying to design a course, I, I would still need to read the material and decide whether it passes the muster. So you do the same thing on the site. Mm -hmm. How did you, and I want to throw this out there, you, what did you research in order to get sort of that roadmap you needed to create that membership site? Yeah, if you're talking specifically about the website, it's kind of a funny story because I didn't know anything about designing a website, like literally nothing. And I don't have a technology background and I can fumble my way around like Twitter and Facebook and things like that, but that's about it. Um, so I did what I do in my day job. I made a PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> so I put together a power presentation where every slide was a frame on the website and it had all the buttons and functionalities that I wanted to appear. It had the color scheme I wanted. It had the layout I wanted. And I shopped that around to different developers. Um, and what they said to me is, oh, you've, you've kind of done our wireframes already. You know, you've already, um, you know, they still had to create some of their own, but usually 
that step comes out of the development team and not the person who wants something developed. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I really had a vision for what I wanted it to look like. And I just, just, I just put it down in, in PowerPoint. (laughs) And I still have that original PowerPoint. It looks pretty lame at this point, but um, um, so that's what I did. And as far as the, the other stuff, the other business stuff, I've just taken a lot of classes for entrepreneurs. Um, you know, our university even has like, um, like classes for um, entrepreneurs who are female and people from underrepresented um, demographic groups. Mm. Um, so they offer classes like 12 week workshops where you learn a bunch of stuff from HR to budgeting, you know, to investing and all that stuff. And you, you can't learn it all at once, but you kind of just start picking it up as you go. I, need to I get still my, have a lot to learn, though. <laughs> wow. I need to get my, my documentary into the hands of someone who is teaching entrepreneurship to uh, someone outside of business so they can put that on their syllabus. Yeah. I, I, I got to find other avenues in terms of my sales uh, to get my documentary in the hands of people. Well, I have some ideas. So after we talk on this podcast, I'll, I'll give you some names. <laughs> awesome. 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 <laughs> So this question, the next question comes to me, it came to me because Dr. Ai Zong, who was a tenured track professor, as we know, you know this better than I do, that's the golden ticket right there. Once you get that, you're like, boom, I'm about to get paid. I'm good. I can just ride this thing out till I, till I say I'm done. She fell in love with entrepreneurship and her husband had been doing some work with Samsung was like, you know, they told him, look, we need you to go to Korea uh, for a few years. And he loaded up the family. You know, she was very excited about it. The university she used to work with, you know, said, Hey, we will allow you to teach some courses online uh, why, why are you, why you're away? And she was doing that, but she was doing speaking. She was writing. She had mm-hmm. this live uh, show. She was doing all of these things and she just fell in love with entrepreneurship and changing education. Mm-hmm. And she was like, she told the university peace. I was like, Oh my God. <laughs> what? <laughs> okay. Wow. Uh, yeah. Yeah. She just rolled out and now she's doing amazing just so many wonderful things with her show uh, as well as, you know, she was at Facebook a couple of weeks ago uh, doing something there. And now she's getting ready to go to uh, Adobe for their Adobe education mm-hmm. stuff. And she has this immersion entrepreneurship program in Korea. So she has people travel and all these entrepreneurs go over there. I'm like, Oh my gosh, Dr. I, you are doing it. But she was in the documentary I was just going to ask you that because I remembered her name from seeing the yes. trailer. Yeah. Yes, she was in the documentary. So you, you will hear her talk about uh, her journey and her ideas. Uh, but it came to me because you are a professor and you are in an environment that is different from the normal entrepreneur, just like I am in K through 12. So what is it like? being in academia, being, working in higher ed when you're an entrepreneur and what are other academics saying about the work you're doing? Yeah, it's, it's an 
it's an interesting juxtaposition because higher ed is slow to change in many ways. We think we're fast to change. We think, you know, we, we, you know, some, some new shiny thing comes our way and we're like, yay, you know, let's all do MOOCs or let's all, you know, use clickers and, you know, we do it for a little while and then we don't. Um, but in terms of the general structure of higher ed, it's very slow to change. Even in the face of changing demographics and needs of the students, I mean, we have a on average, older students starting, you know, uh, post-secondary ed. Many of them have families. Many of them are working. It's this this model of like everybody coming into living together for four years, you know, and sort of taking a break from the real world is just not reality for a lot of people. Um, and so now, but now we have this whole infrastructure, uh, you know, that supports exactly that model that's been mm -hmm. around literally for hundreds of years, and um, and. So when you do have a new idea about how to do something different, um, it's hard to get noticed and taken really seriously. People are interested. They'll tell you it's a good idea. And I do believe um, that I have a good idea. And I do believe people mean it when they, they say it's a good idea. Um, but in terms of changing their behaviors and adopting a new way of thinking about how you, um, about your teaching and scholarship, about sharing things that you aren't used to sharing, mm -hmm. you know, that that's a harder sell because it, it's the changing behavior part. Um, and a lot of our behaviors are conditioned on what we're rewarded for. Um, so even though we're told to go out and do community service, we really don't get rewarded for that as much as we do for bringing in grant money or publishing papers in journals. Um, and so you have an incentive system that I think needs to change. And one of the exciting things that I see uh, that gives me hope is that I do see people doing more things like you're doing. I mean, there's people out there, you know, using social media, doing podcasts, um, you know, um, just creating things, you know, to, to get their research or their teaching ideas across in ways they never have before. And it's forcing universities to say, huh, you know, is the only way we measure someone's worth as a scholar through published journal articles? I don't think so, because there's other stuff they do. So I, I feel like we're sort of slowly starting to wake up and realize there's, there's many ways to translate your work and that um, other things should be thought of as scholarship too. Uh, but starting a business, ooh, I, I mean, the biggest, the biggest challenge I will tell you is that I'm not a nonprofit. <laughs> and if you're in education, people hear you're not a nonprofit and they think you're the devil, <laughs> you know. Um, and it's kind of funny to me because um, being a nonprofit does not shield you from getting bought by a multi-million dollar company for millions of dollars, right? I mean, there are some great examples in the higher ed space of ed tech companies that swore up and down, you know, that, that they would always be nonprofit and they would never get bought by a venture capitalist. And then they were, <laughs> you know, um, and I just saw being a for-profit company, you know, if I'm going to invest all the time in, in, a, in a whole second mortgage in this idea, I'm going to get paid. <laughs> I need to be able to live and have a, have a salary and have an, have, have an income. And 
I didn't want to just be scrambling for grants all the time because mm. I've already done that for 20 years with my research. You know, I, I, I thought it was a more stable way to be a business, um, to be a for-profit company. Um, my goal isn't to be a, a mega hit. You know, I just want to make a difference. I want to promote the unsung heroes in higher ed. I want to make sure that all of our work gets recognized and cited and acknowledged and used. Um, I love, um, I'm sort of at the tail end of my, my faculty career. I get jazzed about promoting other people, you know, the people mm -hmm. that are, you know, earlier on. Um, and, and that's essentially what I get to do all day on Prof to Prof. Um, so I kind of rambled there. I didn't quite get it. <laughs> no, that's cool. That's Your cool. question. <laughs> Because you, what you're doing is, you know, what we talk about in the documentary of making the impact and the income, mm -hmm. right? And where it is okay for those who work in education to be rewarded for their genius, be rewarded for the work they put in just as someone else who works for Google or who mm -hmm. decides hey, I'm going to, you know, create a startup or, you know, open up whatever company they, they want to do, open up. Uh, so I'm, I'm hearing a lot of, you know, awesome things from, from you. And what's interesting, what you're talking about with higher ed and sort of that shift and what they are maybe looking at for 10 year or what they seem valid is, you know, there's a lot of talk now in higher ed about the value of that right. degree, right? Yeah. When you have so many people who are getting degrees, taking out huge mm -hmm. loans and are not getting a job or they're getting a job with a quote unquote sub par salary. Part of that is the university system because mm -hmm. unfortunately there are a lot of degree programs that do not funnel straight into a job like social work, education, you know there is a clear career path job sort of waiting on you when you graduate. Mm -hmm. So like nursing. Now they're not glamorous jobs and they're not high, you know, highly paid jobs, mm -hmm. but more than likely you graduate from an education program, a social work program, you get your license, nursing as well, you're going to get find yourself a, a job versus other people with a degree in history. I don't even know why a philosophy uh, degree program still exists, but you know, those things right there. And I'm, and, and I'm wondering with the shift in how people are looking at their degree and looking at the return on investment in terms of their dollars and their time, how universities are examining what they're doing in terms of making what they're doing do with the students more career career related more job embedded skills so that those students sort of are better prepared for the job market once they leave and in doing so impacts the people they actually hire to teach those courses right because mm -hmm. if you've been doing research for 15 years and hadn't set foot I don't want to say the real world, but if you hadn't set foot, <laughs> you know, in a company, in a nonprofit, in an organization actually working, 
your knowledge in terms of what the day-to-day look like is far different. Right. Someone earlier, we, we were talking about the adjunct where this person may work for DHS and they teach a class or two. That person knows when they, like, when they talk to kids, okay, this, the research may say X, Y, and Z, but my caseload is this. I'm telling yeah. you right now, like, this is what's going down when you get that three o'clock in the morning phone call and you have to go to the hospital or you have to go see this family because someone there was a, a shooting or whatever. Mm-hmm. And this is how you navigate the job. Are you optimistic that with what you said earlier and what is going on, that higher ed is going to make the necessary shift in sort of looking at how they actually teach and prepare students for the world? I think there's a couple things that come to mind. Um, You know, one is that one of the ways I think we have to change, especially in longer degree programs, you know, the four years, even even the two years, a lot of a lot of people have to step out, you know, for for just life, you know, something happens and they can't they, you know, their car breaks down and they have no way to fix it and they have to stop coming to classes or they lose their child care, you know, a, a number, any number of things that you can imagine. And we make it so hard. Um, you know, they, then they leave with nothing. So they've paid, you know, some, they've paid, they've taken out loans or they've paid money and they've got nothing to show for it. What I would love to see and what I think is starting to be thought about, I don't think it's widely implemented, but is this idea that we should embed like certificate programs along the way, you know, things that can be bid off in smaller chunks so that if you do have to step out, you're not stepping away with nothing. Um, because there is research that, that it's almost a linear pattern. The, the, the higher your degree, the more your average income is on average. Right. Mm-hmm. But that also, that, that graph you can think of in your head doesn't take into account the debt that you might incur and that you have to pay off. And so I'd like to, I'd like to see, you know, higher ed sort of figure out how to give people something to show for the, what they've put in at smaller steps along, along the way. Um, And, you know, I think to the students are, I'm a, I'm a big fan of liberal arts education because I do think there's value in philosophy courses and history courses. And, you know, I look at my high school sons, you know, some of the, so not all the kids he hangs around with, but some of them don't even know um, about the civil rights movement really, or about the Holocaust really, you know, um, and, and they, you can't go forward in this world with all the, you know, dangers that are out there. um, And, not learn from history, you know, not have that as a framework, um, not be able to, to think of different models of social justice and what makes sense to solve a problem. You, you know, so I'm a, I'm a big fan. Now, I do think another thing we've done wrong and that we are starting to correct is that we, especially in PhD programs, we take students in and for a long time, we tell them the only thing we want you to do when you get done is go be a faculty member. And in a lot of disciplines, there aren't enough jobs, you know, in academia. But you do learn a set of skills, um, you know, getting a graduate degree. 
um, critical thinking skills, analytical skills, speaking skills, writing skills, things that are valued in a lot of different kinds of jobs. But we don't help students package them to be able to go after those other jobs. And we also don't tell them it's okay to not be a faculty member. There's a lot of other things that can bring value to the world. You know, so when I'm a, I'm a chair of a doctoral program and I, when students come in, I give them this infographic that shows them all these different kinds of careers they might consider um, pursuing with a PhD. And I kind of set the tone right away. It's all okay, you know, and we're going to help you get to any one of these outcomes. But there's many programs that are still not doing that and making students feel like they're failing if they don't go into academia when they're done. But I think that will change. I do have hope because it's, it is changing already. Wow. That's all right. That's all right. Yeah, I, I was already working in K through 12. So it, it, it well, no. I, I, I literally had, I went to get a, into a doctoral program because I did have the idea of working in higher ed. And it was interesting because I told, I, I did some informal interviews and everybody was telling me, go get it. Because I told them, I said, look, I want to be director of minority affairs or student affairs. And they said, go get, go get your doctoral degree because sometimes the person who's over that is also a vice president and they're going to require you to have that degree. And it wasn't until I entered my program and then I started talking to people in the field and they were like, Oh man, I, I went to three different universities before I got this position. I was like, okay, move my wife around the country like that. Uh, and then I ended up in K through 12. Mm-hmm. which it's been, you know, it's been a great, a great ride for me. I'm, I'm enjoying the work, but a lot of people that I've, that, that I see, even in my district, there are, there are teachers and administrators who have uh, their PhDs or EDDs. And I don't know how many, how many of them have dreams of let me go to higher ed. I'm just fascinated by higher ed because I love dialogue. Yeah. Talking about, issues and ideas and I and I have this fantasy of being in the classroom and talking to people and we're just like talking about these ideas and I'm getting excited and every time I'm on a college campus I go what are they talking about here? right <laughs> which, which door should I go in and see yes, what's going on <laughs> I get so excited about that um but I don't even but you, you know maybe that's just me looking through different lens of what I think Kyrie is uh, versus what it ac- it is actually is. And you you know something you said a few minutes ago. I think you know I do think a lot more students these days. I think we we wish they felt like you just described. Like this is a time to just soak it up and have a nimble. You know make make your mind more nimble and and you know just sprout these new thoughts and ideas. But a lot of them really see it as a means to an end you know, and they're worried about what that end is. What is that thing on the other side? And they want to know, you know, what skills do I need to, to get to that end, you know, to get that job at the end. Um, and, and I think we, we do, we do a little of both, you know, I, as a school of social work, you know, I'm in the child welfare area. We don't want to just train people how to do the mechanical job of being a child welfare worker. Like this is the the information system you use and this is what you do on this day and this is what you do next. And 
you want to layer that with how should we be thinking about the child welfare system and its origins and how should we be um, thinking about how other systems affect the child welfare system, policies that get passed and, you know, how, how do we think about improving it and making it not such a scary place for families, something to be afraid of, but actually a system that could be thought of as helpful by communities, mm-hmm. you know, and so to do, that's another level of thinking about your work. Mm-hmm. Um, than maybe just going to a training on how to do your job. Um, and so we try to do, I think, a little of both. And maybe it was too heavy on the thinking about it from a, a big, you know, a big lens before. Um, I'd hate to see it go entirely in the other direction, though, because you want people to learn to be critical thinkers and make be the ones that make the change. Mm. So... In building a business, it's one thing for you to build it. And there's another thing for people to know it exists mm-hmm. and you get members or customers or people who are going to, on a consistent basis, purchase what you have to offer. You know, it's notorious from this movie, Field of Dreams, if you build it, they will come. <laughs> Yeah, no, they won't. <laughs> In business, that's just a flat-out lie. <laughs> right. <laughs> Doesn't happen that way. Um, so in talking about marketing, how did you educate yourself? And what are you doing, right, to mm-hmm. encourage active participation among your membership? So I'm still learning, and I would say um, – you know, there are things I didn't understand and I still don't really understand about like, how do you enhance your SEO, your search engine optimization, you know, like all that was new to me. Um, And so even some of the ways I built the site aren't optimizing, um, you know, people finding it. And so I'm now trying to like kind of catch up and make some corrections to the site so that, so that I do have um, more discoverability. and, and I don't have a huge budget because I'm self-funding this. And, and it actually costs a lot of money to advertise. Um, you know, I tried to take out an ad in a, in a big higher ed news outlet, you know, so it would show up on their banner, you know, like when people open and read the news for the day. And it was like $7,000 for a week. I mean, I just can't do that. And so I've mostly grown the site just through organic word of mouth. Um, but then maybe a year into it, I had this idea that instead of the drip, drip, drip of sort of one member at a time joining, I'd go after networks of academics. So I'd find a network that has a motivation to share material and and accomplish some goal and the need to communicate with each other. And I built some functionality in the site that supported networks. Um, and then that, you know, then you get a you know, a lot of people joining all at once instead of just that drip, drip, drip. So that's helped a bit. And then I've just had just kind of some luck in like, um, I went to present on this shark tank panel for higher ed at South by Southwest. Wow. And 
I was like a late invitation. I think somebody must have dropped out of the panel and they scrambled to find, find somebody else and happened to stumble on me. Um, and it wasn't, it didn't involve any money, but it was just this panel of startups, people who had, you know, founded companies and they were presenting, pitching their idea to a group of um, ed tech experts in the room in front of an audience. And I had, you know, five minutes, you know, to do, to do my pitch. And then they asked a bunch of questions and then they had like four or five other people that they did the same with. And the Chronicle of Higher Ed, a big news outlet in Higher Ed, um, did a story on this Shark Tank panel. And literally overnight, my membership doubled from having that exposure. This tiny little couple of sentences in this story um, in that news outlet. And so that really drove home for me the power of marketing. <laughs> and then, um, so anyway, I'm working on that. Um, it's right now kind of focusing on putting more content on the site out of the, outside the login mm -hmm. to, to drive people to find it, you know, heightened discoverability. And then working on just bringing on networks. And now more, more recently, I'm trying to work with um, institutions, you know, like community colleges or universities that don't offer personal websites to their employees, you know, um, um, they can just use prof to prof and, you know, include a link to people's bio pages on prof to prof. Um, hmm. So I'm trying to work on some of those relationships too. Awesome. Awesome. So before we go, what is your call to action for that educator who is thinking about monetizing their talents, monetizing that research, that knowledge, that practice, things that they're doing and they're loving and would like to share to a greater audience. Because I like to tell people, it's not about chasing the money. Mm -hmm. uh, it is truly about when you're an entrepreneur that you are not looking for the transaction, but the transformation of what work you can do for someone else. Mm -hmm. uh, what is your call to action for that individual to get out there and get it going? Yeah, I think I think the first thing is to think just be, just because you aren't just because you don't have an MBA or you're not trained, you know, in a particular kind of technology, um, don't count yourself out because there are people out there creating solutions who might have that knowledge, but they don't have the inside baseball knowledge of actually being an educator, mm. you know? And so I feel like a lot of the educational technologies that are being pushed on us by our universities or colleges, you know, you know, creating these contracts with companies without asking us and, you know, just, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, for each contract, for each thing um, that, that, that we're supposed to use in the classroom. And if you look, I always go right to the founders page. Like, who are these people? Like, you know, um, and a lot of times, maybe eight out of 10, it's people that have never been in this space. And they're, they're, they're um, solving problems for us. But I want us, I want us who are in the education space to be the ones that solve our problems, to think of the solutions, to think of ways to improve this space. I want us to lead the change. Um, and to do that, we have to, you know, take our ideas and be brave um, 
it, it's also not cheap to start something. So I recognize that and, and I've really done this on a shoestring. Um, but, but when you talk to people, um, you know, get out there and talk to people who are doing businesses like yours and you'll find there's quite a few people that never get back to you. Um, but there, there are enough people out there who want to support you and champion you. And so I've had, you know, coffee with this person that opens a door with this person that opens a door with the next person. And then it leads to something and you just got to do that kind of work. It's not super expensive. It's just time consuming. Um, but you be the one to make the change and, and not just have it happen to us. Cause that's, what's happening all the time, at least in higher ed. Um, and it gets a little old. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. Thank you, Dr. Slack for coming on the show. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. It was a lot of fun talking with you. You're welcome. Yes. Great time. Great time. Now people, you know how I do this, this podcast episode We'll be going up on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Simplecast, and Spotify. I need you to subscribe and follow. Leave your comments. Leave your ratings, people. It's very important on Apple Podcasts that you leave your reviews because I want my podcast to come up. All right? I want it when the SEO and people are searching. I want my woo. want to come to the top, people. I want it to be found people i need you to do that show your love because your boy is also trying to get oprah on the show <laughs> and i want her to know right that i'm doing big things around here again i'd like to thank my guest dr Kristen slack for dropping so many gems and i would like to thank you again for holding on listening to the dr will show the mobile university for entrepreneurs and don't forget to go to vimeo.com forward slash on demand forward slash entrepreneur to get your copy of the entrepreneur as always people invest in you edu peace <laughs>